0: buyers and this is Successful Associations Today. My guest is Arlene Pytranton, PhD, CAE, who has served as the Chief Executive Officer of the American Speech Language Hearing Association, ASHA, since 2004 and she will retire at the end of 2021. Before working at ASHA, Arlene was on staff at the George Washington University Medical Center in Washington DC, where she held several clinical and administrative positions as a speech language pathologist and member of the Medical Center Administration. She is an ASHA fellow and a fellow of the American Society of Association Executives. She's been recognized as a top uh, 2015 association and nonprofit innovator. She received the 2015 Professional Society CEO of the Year by CEO update, 2018 Association Executive of the Year by Association Trends, and she was the 2018 recipient of ASAE's Key Award. Arlene has more association knowledge in her pinky than most of us do in our whole our whole bodies. so I'm especially happy to have her here today. Welcome, Arlene.
1: Thank you, Mary. I really appreciate the invitation to be with you.
0: So we're talking about the most important aspects of creating an innovation culture for an association. And I would be curious from your
1: perspective, what these are. So I wanna answer your question and also say um, that at Ash, I don't think we think so much about um, an innovation culture per se, but a culture that will enable us to bring our best, to deliver the best value um, for members, to provide the most engaging work experience for all of us, um, where we can uh, embrace and recognize that change is the one constant, right? Um, you're You're not gonna be doing things the same way. So sometimes it's evolutionary, it's how do we make it better? It's incremental and evolutionary. Sometimes it's, we need to grow this and we need to move this to a different place to really deliver on behalf of our members. And there are times when it needs to transform, or, and you do that in a, you have the opportunity to do that in a proactive way to say, you know, we need to move this to a whole other place. This needs to really be rethought, reformulated, reshaped, or sometimes you need to do it in response to disruptions. And we've all certainly experienced a lot of that over the last 18, 19 months. So it isn't that we and I know different organizations approach it differently, but it's not that we necessarily said we need to be an innovative um, environment. It's that we said we need to be able to navigate um, change across these different uh, perspectives, run, grow, transform uh, and or disruption.
0: So your ability and willingness change on a regular basis, though, I think makes ASHA stand out. You know, I certainly work with a lot of organizations for whom comfort is uh, more the standard operating uh, procedure or the complacency, inertia, those tend to be the way they operate. But just the fact that you embrace change, and you recognize that it needs to happen, whether it's evolutionary or revolutionary. I think is part of what makes you innovative, even though you don't necessarily call yourselves innovative. Yeah,
1: I, I think I think, and I hope and believe we are innovative, but I think it's it's a consequence of how we want to operate, and not necessarily the goal. Um, and and that may be splitting hairs, I realize. Um, but you asked about culture, Mary, and I, I think there are several things. So for us, and this is going to play out differently in different organizations, but for us at ASHA, um, I think there are several key elements. So one is a culture of collaboration where people share ideas because if you're only working within your own lane or you're only working with others who are thinking the same and doing the same kinds of things as you, you have kind of a narrow, um, a more narrow uh, perspective on things when you can reach across um, areas of uh different uh, operations and functions within the organization, when you can engage with folks who uh, bring different perspectives, different lived experiences, different ideas about things, that's where you really can become additive and you can spark different insights. So true collaboration. And to truly be collaborative, you need a culture um, of that is truly inclusive, where everybody can be themselves, where they can show up and bring their full selves and know that their contributions are going to be valued and respected. Um, You need a culture where, I think, um, you need to be as least hierarchical as possible so that everybody's ideas are welcomed and valued. And you need a culture where it's okay to try some things and to take some calculated risks, and if they don't play out, to learn from them. Um, So those are some of the things that really uh, stand out in my mind in terms of cultural factors that I think are important.
0: So when you consider those cultural factors that you've outlined, what do you see as the CEO's role in creating and sustaining that culture?
1: Well, I'm obviously not unbiased, um, having been in that role for a number of years. I I think the CEO has uh, a a key responsibility to to truly foster um, those cultural elements and to truly walk the talk to believe in them and to um, be thoughtful about how do you support those within the organization. Um, in my experience, you know, actually, as you may know, uh, began a cultural transformation back in the late 1990s. I know that was forever ago, um, but uh, to the credit of my predecessor, Fred Sparr, um, he realized that As Asha had grown over the years, it had inadvertently become siloed and hierarchical, um, and uh, was not an environment in which risk taking was supported. So Fred undertook the initiated a a cultural transformation, and it really was a group effort. It wasn't just one person, um, one person's ideas, or one person leading it. So, for us, in my experience of the cultural transformation that I think we've been pretty successful with at ASHA, it's that we really built buy-in and encouraged participation, and um, really uh, tried to um, make this something that uh, if we have we have a written statement of our culture, so we've tried to be um, explicit and clear about it. We consider it in the hiring process. We consider it in our performance reviews. We try to hold each other accountable to those um, cultural expectations. You know, my belief is that a CEO um, cannot individually make that happen. Um, I do believe a CEO can individually squelch the culture um, if you don't walk the talk.
0: I would agree with that. I think it's a lot easier to talk about being inclusive and welcoming and encouraging and allowing people to fail than it is to actually do that, especially when you're part of your success as a CEO is measured by the organizational activity and success. Uh, so, So for some, it's a little easier to try to hold on to control and to hold on to the reins and try to run things alone. But that whole team effort, and that is certainly something that I see with organizations that are innovating, is the collaboration, as you mentioned, being an important aspect of it, uh, because it really is too much for one person to do. And especially now in the middle of a pandemic and when we look at what what life is going to look like post-pandemic it's all hands on deck. We saw that at the beginning. And I think that might be a silver lining that will come out of this, is that we've seen what we can do when we pull together. But you know, just because of associations being what they are, there are obstacles that are inherent when it comes to associations and innovation. And from your perspective, what are those or what might those be?
1: I don't think there's any novel insights in terms of you know how, how I would answer that, Mary. Um, you know, we as um, as associate, associations oftentimes are a bit risk adverse, and that's understandable. You know, we are organizations that are set up for the long run. Um, we have fiduciary responsibilities to our members and other stakeholders. We have societal responsibilities for which we've been granted a nonprofit tax status. So you know there are a variety of um, constraints and limitations that we really do need to uh, respect and, and, and operate within. Um, there's also, and again, others have pointed this out, there's the um, unusual, I don't know if it's unusual, there's the reality of the, um, the duality of authority within associations. You know, the role of the volunteer leaders, the board of directors in terms of um, focusing on the priorities, the vision, the what of of the organization's um, efforts, and then the staff leadership in terms of the how to accomplish those things. So um, there's a need to bring those into alignment um, where both of those decision sets of decision makers understand and respect the role and responsibility of one another, but they're able to interface with one another to be able to um, help contribute to and and have some influence in one another's efforts. Um, You know, there's a great slide, I know you're familiar with it in um, the Exceptional Boards Symposium that talks about, you know, the, the what and the how, but then shows the reality of you know, when our board's deciding what our uh, senior staff are fully involved in the conversation, they're going to offer historical perspective, opinion, concerns, um, uh, factual information. When it comes when it comes time though to make the vote, it's only the board that gets to vote. When staff is moving forward to execute the what that's been agreed to, whether it's a uh, a strategic priority, or a public policy agenda item, you know, staff is going to be brainstorming and deciding on the work plan to execute, and we welcome input from board members and volunteer leaders and members if they have ideas about something. And some of them, their ideas are wonderful contributions and or they have key contacts that will help us to accomplish that how. So it's not only understanding and respecting each other's uh, responsibilities and roles, but how can we help to contribute um, in a way that really uh, is additive and does not undermine who needs to be doing what.
0: I think it's like a good marriage. You have to have each other's back. You have to have a lot of trust and openness and candor. And when that happens, it's easier for an organization to thrive than it is when we're in protective mode or the board and the staff are not working well together. And sadly uh, that, that does happen. Um, You're one of the few associations that I have been able to find that has an actual identified, articulated innovation
1: process. Tell me how that has helped your efforts. So um, again, and I don't want to, you know, split hairs, but we really don't necessarily um, think of it as a, Innovation process as much as a priority setting. Um, We have a lot of great ideas um, within the organization, within our volunteer leaders, within our staff. Um, You know, we are a large staff association. We have 300 staff um, who are very engaged, very committed to what they're doing, and very embracing of that uh, reality of change. So They want to see the work they're doing continue to evolve. They want to move it to new levels. So there's no uh, limit on, uh, no lack of good ideas. We don't have the resources, though, to follow through on all the good ideas. So we do have a disciplined process for proposing um, projects or proposing uh, new activities. Um, We do that, we do some of it through our budget proposal process, we do some of it through um, an annual. A project request cycle. Um, we also have a cycle for uh, requesting additional positions. So we we really try to be intentional about what are the good ideas that need to be pursued, and then how do we align the resources to be able to make them happen?
0: So you would you would consider that a priority filter. Just as think, much as uh, as an innovation filter, they kind of double as as one and the same. They do,
1: yeah. And in bringing forward a proposed new way of uh, operating a program, or enhancing a program, or a new program, um, or a new member offering, you know, in bringing that forward, there's usually um, a strong element of innovation of doing something different. And again, sometimes it might be evolutionary, and sometimes it's transformative. Um, But the mindset isn't necessarily, let's be innovative. The mindset is how do we deliver more value um, on behalf of our members?
0: I love that because when you ask that question, you engage the brain and starting to solve that problem and innovation comes naturally uh, from that. Thank you. What, um, what what would you say? You know, you talk about uh, evolutionary, revolutionary, different kinds of innovation that has led you to enhanced member value. Can you think of one or two things off the top of your head that that would be a case study or of interest to
1: other associations? Um, I can think of a lot of things we've done um, and wow. hopefully they're of interest to others. So uh, one is how we, um, you know, our members, are audiologists, speech language pathologists, speech language hearing scientists, the majority of our members engage in clinical practice. They are seeing uh, clients and patients or students in an academic setting, in a school setting. So having current, accurate, evidence-informed practice information is hugely important to our members. Um, up until a few years ago, the primary way that we did that was by pulling together um, uh, groups of members with subject matter expertise who would develop documents um, about best practices and those documents would be available on our website. Um, it took, typically took at least a couple of months for those members to complete those documents. And then of course, once they were posted, um, they would inevitably, um, there'd be new information that uh, could further inform uh, the the guidance that was there um, that you couldn't just incorporate into the existing document, had to go back through subject matter expert review, um, approval by the board of directors. So there was a very, Um, disciplined and formalized process for doing that. We realized that the rate of change of information was such that that length of time was was a barrier. So we made a commitment to uh, have an online practice portal where we have staff who have um, experience in the field. They are certified audiologists, certified speech language pathologists, they in a very real-time dynamic way can engage the subject matter experts. So we have revamped our approach to how we provide um, up-to-date, relevant, evidence-informed clinical information, and it can be updated now on a much more rapid basis. Um, It still has the um, uh, steps of verification involved, but it doesn't have the formality of appointing a committee of subject matter experts, having a a charge and a deliverable and approval by the board of directors. So we're able to keep it much more current. Um, It's also informed by evidence maps, um, which we have staff um, whose job it is to continuously um, review the literature and the ever evolving um, science and research.
0: So that's an excellent example of where your staff is working with volunteer leaders, really in in lockstep to create value uh, for members. So uh, thank you for that. I think a lot of organizations struggle with that whole standard setting or informational setting or best practices and how to keep it timely. And it's almost like you said, the minute you're done with it, you have to start over. But, but how we do that in a rapidly changing environment where we can get access to information instantaneously, I think has, has been a challenge. So uh, speaking of that, you know, technology is plays a role in how we can deliver member value and deliver with excellence. What's the role of technology from your standpoint in association innovation?
1: Uh, Technology is absolutely essential. It is the very backbone on which we operate. It's a little bit like the air we breathe or the electricity, you know, that we take for granted. Um, we, uh, our our ability to, and, and we've certainly seen over these last 19 months um, in a way uh, even more compelling, how important various platforms um Uh, are to enable access to information, people to connect, to be able to collaborate with each other. Um, You know, when I first started working at ASHA in the mid-1990s, we had facts on demand. Um, You know, we had uh, a lot of members. uh, We still have a lot of members calling, but, you know, the primary mode of interacting with the organization was a real-time conversation to ask about if resources were available that were then either mailed or faxed. Um, The the rate of um, response or the response time that people need and expect is vastly different from that. So, you know, our digital communications, um, our our website, our communities, um, our mentoring platforms, our email, uh, blasts, our uh, digital uh, e-newsletter, um, the uh, infrastructure through which we um, uh, maintain member records, um, our financial records, um, our human resources records. I mean, everything that we do uh, relies on, you know, either operationally or interaction, from an interaction perspective, you know, really relies on technology and digital platforms.
0: That was one of the biggest changes between the first and second edition of Race for Relevance was the the 10 years, tripled, quadrupled, accelerated in so many ways the need and the abilities and the capabilities that we have through digital technology. And when you think about how we can use that to automate and systemize, uh, systematize the delivery of services, then we can take our human capital uh, and use it to the highest and best use of its capabilities. So in some ways, things have gotten more complex, but in other oh, ways, more.
1: it's actually yeah. gotten easier. So it's kind of a conundrum or a paradox. Yeah. It is a pair. I think that's a great word, Mary, because you're right. And you know, the opportunity to personalize and customize um, and to have better insights about members' needs and wants. Um, on the other hand, it, we need to use that responsibly too, because we 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 need to respect privacy. Um, and we we don't want we we don't want to overstep um, and have members feel or wonder you know, exactly what kind of information, you know, is the association um, uh, tracking about them and how is it being used? How do we use it in a responsible way that is in service to members, um, helps us to deliver better value, um, but doesn't overstep a line?
0: Yeah, that is a great, that's a great question and worth spending time with, I think, for, for association leaders. As we wrap up, What's the first couple of steps an association professional who wants to build a more innovative culture? And and I know you don't call it an innovative culture, but uh, to build a culture
1: that embraces change, what would be the first couple of steps you would recommend to them? Yeah. So one that embraces change and fosters innovation. Um, I, I think the first thing would be to really take a good look at what the reality of your culture is. Every organization has a culture, whether it's by design or default. So what is your culture? Um, that's And again, it's been several decades, but that's where ASHA started, was a hard look at what's the reality of our culture. And we realized that it, many aspects of it weren't what we wanted it to be. So how, how do you first take inventory and then be thoughtful about what do you want it to be And what steps can you take to get from where you are to where you want to be? And and now, Mary, as you know, there are a number of um, resources, um, uh, online, in print, um, through consultants that can help an organization to really take that inventory and to be thoughtful about what steps would help to get from where you are to where you want to be. So I think that gap analysis is critically important,
0: but having a senior team that is willing to stay the course, I think you know, one of the things that I hear a lot is, you know, we're, we're so busy trying to meet our next meeting deadline or our next member deadline that the ability to step back and take a long hard look is, uh, drops down lower on the priority list. But the irony is, is if you start with that and you build a culture that supports change and innovation, it actually makes things easier in the long run. But we're so time-pressed, sometimes it's hard to see that.
1: I think that's very true. And you're right. If you, the time you can invest, you know, if you can protect that time and invest it, it's going to return lots more um, uh, efficiency, and um, value in terms of the results that you're getting. But you do have to spend some time, you have to pay attention to those things.
0: Intentional and deliberate. I think those are two words that, that sums up the approach. Arlene, it's been such a treat to have you here, thank you. Mary, thank you, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm Mary Byers, and this is Successful Associations Today.